dedicated to the survival of American democracy in an increasingly dangerous world, this is Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney, acted as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy under President Ronald Reagan, founder of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C., the go-to man for defense and foreign policy issues, joined by the greatest minds in the security policy business, the special forces in the war of ideas at Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney. Welcome to Secure Freedom Radio. This is Frank Gaffney, your host and guide for what I think of as an intelligence briefing on the war for the free world. A man whose intelligence has been extraordinarily refined, informed, and influential, I'm very pleased to say, is our first guest. His name is Robert Spencer. He is the director of a remarkably important resource, the online jihadwatch.org project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. He is a contributor to outlets like PJ Media and Front Page Magazine. He is the author of innumerable books, it seems to me, um, three of which are particularly noteworthy and recent. Uh, Did Mohammed Exist? Uh, The a book published recently by the Center for Security Policy Press, I'm pleased to say, Islamophobia and Free Speech, and the forthcoming book, The Critical Quran, coming to us in November. It is great to have a chance to catch up with him always, but most especially at a moment like this, when our need for clarity about a phenomenon I think is best described as Sharia supremacism is once again urgent and desperate. And it's great to have one of the great authorities on the subject with us. Robert, welcome back to Secure Freedom Radio. Always good to talk to you, Frank. Thank you. I wanted to start with um, your assessment of the implications of what has been unfolding in the past 10 days or so in Afghanistan for, uh, well, most immediately, the people now taking over the place again a group we've known and loathed for a long time called the Taliban, and their associates, including the Haqqanis and al-Qaeda, and even their counterparts in the Islamic State. Within Afghanistan, Robert, uh, let's start there and then we'll back the lens up a bit. But um, what are the implications of the defeat of the United States that has just been meted out thanks to uh, Joe Biden. The jihadis are emboldened everywhere. Uh, An Afghan commander recently told CNN that uh, this is not the end, that jihad will not end with Afghanistan, but will continue till the end of the world. All over the world, there are jihadis that are hailing what they call a victory for Islam and are seeing it as uh, a great encouragement that the world's lone superpower can be defeated and thus Allah will allow jihadis to prevail over whatever odds. So this is going to be the inspiration and basis for a great increase of jihad terror activity in the near future. And when you say that, you're talking about not simply those in and operating from the territory that the Taliban will control, but you're talking about those throughout the world. And, and it truly is, and you might just develop this point, if you would, um, the the scale of the global Islamic movement today. It is indeed a global movement. Uh, in the first place, you have uh, the resurgence of ISIS in Iraq and Syria, where ISIS now controls at least 10 villages and is recapturing 
the territory from which it was driven out in 2017. You have al-Qaeda active all over the world. You have ISIS active, particularly in Africa also, where it controls territory in Mozambique near some very valuable oil fields. And is al-Qaeda is active through al-Shabaab in Somalia and Kenya. And then you have ISIS also through the Islamic State West Africa province, so-called, or Boko Haram in Nigeria. And so all these areas then are uh, expanding uh, amid weak, tepid, ineffective responses from the various governments involved. And so it is possible that Africa could be engulfed in jihad warfare on a continent-wide basis in the near future. And when you contemplate this, uh, again, some of this is psychological, some of this is is clearly of a uh, theological character. You've mentioned uh, the confidence that they can take from this, that Allah's promise of, you know, the triumph of the jihad worldwide is going to come to pass. When you look at this, Robert, uh, what does it mean for those in the areas that have been conquered by these sorts of jihadists? Uh, I mean, give us your take on the likelihood that we will see a return to the bad old days of the Taliban uh, pre-9-11 as they take and consolidate power, um, particularly once the U.S. and other Western forces are out of Afghanistan, finally, um, presumably on the 31st of August? Well, it means the imposition of Sharia, and that means the institutionalized denial of rights to women and to non-Muslims, and the imposition of draconian uh, hudud punishments, such as the amputation of the hand for theft, Stoning for adultery, which is uh, often, not always, but often carried out only against the women involved and not the men. And uh, various other precepts that are a complete variance with the principles that are otherwise respected around the world of equality of rights of all people before the law and uh, the freedom of speech, of course, because criticism of Islam is forbidden in Sharia and so on. And when we talk about Sharia, Robert, this is um, not simply, again, a, a theological doctrine, is it? It is essentially a code for obtaining and exercising dominion and power in, in the most ruthless way. So when you talk about Boko Haram and, and you know ISIS in the West African province and uh, the other elements, um, you're talking about the imposition of this political program, uh, sometimes it's characterized as a caliphate. Sometimes it's uh, it's not. But wherever it operates, it has as its ultimate purpose, does it not? Uh, domination and furtherance of the jihad to other areas as well. So this is this is an unfolding. Uh, problem, in other words, not one that is by any means confined to the places where it operates today. No, Steve, the thing about it is, Frank, that Sharia is an all-encompassing program for every aspect of human behavior. There is nothing that you can imagine doing as a human being that there's not a law for in Sharia, and that includes society, governance, uh, politics, 
relationships between states and so on. And also Sharia contains the doctrines of jihad, which mandate as a command of Allah the expansion of the Sharia state and its imposition, the imposition of Sharia over non-Muslim states and, and Muslim states that don't impose Sharia already uh, as a matter of divine duty, as a matter of one's responsibility before Allah. And consequently, Sharia states always have an aggressive posture toward those around them and are always provoking conflicts with them. And so this is really a recipe for warfare for generations to come. It's about jihad at the end of the day, which Sharia, of course, commands. Let, let me ask you this question, Robert, because it's a, it's a pregnant one at the moment, needless to say. Um, we are advised by people who generally don't know as much about any of this as you do, having studied it closely, have written innumerable books on the subject and related topics, that there is a Sharia that is benign, uh, that is uh, not jihadist in character, that is not about world conquest and dominion, and that um, the people who are engaged in the form that the Taliban embrace are somehow extremists and uh, doing so uh, out of some sort of, well, almost mindless devotion to um, something that really doesn't have standing within the Islamic tradition. Um, walk us through this, if you would, carefully, because uh, I'm asking in part not only for the purpose of clarifying what to expect in Afghanistan and some of these other places, but also um, how likely it is that we can expect help from other nations uh, that are uh, Muslim uh, in nature, but don't impose Sharia, as these fellows insist upon having done? Well, look, it's really very simple. Everywhere you see Sharia implemented, it looks the same. And so to say that there is some benign form of Sharia that doesn't oppress women and doesn't have aggressive designs against non-Sharia political entities and doesn't oppress non-Muslims, this just flies in the face of our universal historical experience, that every state, every country, every empire that has ever implemented Sharia has Muslims and, and, and denied the freedom of speech and denied the freedom of conscience in exactly the same way. And so you look today at Saudi Arabia and Iran, and for all their differences and all the differences between Sunnis and Shia and so on, their Sharia states look essentially the same. And there's no, there's no, this is no accident. This is because, contrary to myth in the West, Sharia is a recognized body of jurisprudence that takes essentially the same form everywhere. And it is the authoritative tradition of Islam, uh, not some sort of grave and uh, egregious departure from it. Right. It's mainstream, standard Islam. Uh, I think the most vivid illustration of this fact is that the Islamic calendar does not begin with what you might expect, the birth of Muhammad or the death of Muhammad. It even doesn't even start with when Muhammad became a prophet. It starts with when Muhammad moved from Mecca to Medina and became a political and military leader, and when Islam became a political entity and not just a religious preaching. That's the beginning of Islam as far as the Islamic calendar is concerned. Suffice it to say that there are 
many Muslims around the world who do not follow their faith according to Sharia. Um, but unfortunately for the authorities of Islam, they're considered to be apostates. And Robert Spencer, what is the punishment for apostasy in Islam under Sharia? It's death. And so we see, for example, uh, Mahmoud Mohammed Taha was a reformer in Sudan in the 1980s. And in 1985, he was executed by the Sudanese government as a heretic because he taught that uh, the peaceful passages of the Quran should take precedence over the more violent ones instead of the other way around. We'll be watching this play out here in real time, I fear, um, where the Taliban will be setting upon those who not only were involved in some way, shape, or form with the United States military or the Afghan government, uh, but were seen as failing to follow uh, Islam's teachings pursuant to Sharia. And uh, it will be a horrific reminder of uh, both the character of this tradition as well as the intolerance that it exhibits to people of its own faith, let alone others, if they feel as though they do not comport themselves in accordance with Sharia supremacist teachings. Robert, this brings me to the matter of people coming in large numbers from Afghanistan to the United States. We are assured that they are people who have been vetted. We are told that they are people who worked with our country supported us and therefore deserved to be here. Um, I, I would just ask you in closing quickly to say, uh, as we'll be talking about a bit further with Michelle Garfinkel in a moment, but your perspective on what the potential is, at the very least, that some of those coming here may be so imbued with this Sharia tradition that they will pose a problem for us internally inside the United States, perhaps in their own right, perhaps in connection with others, uh, whether from Afghanistan or uh, members of the Muslim Brotherhood, perhaps, uh, or other radical Islamist groups in this country, uh, and, and constitute a, a real peril inside the United States itself. Frank, the likelihood of that is about 100%. There are a lot of reports coming out of Afghanistan right now of uh, forged documents, forged identity papers, and so on. And so while we're assured that all the people who are coming over have been vetted and are trustworthy, there's really no way to ensure that. And there's a very large likelihood that there will be jihadis who come in among them, among the refugees. This has already happened. Yesterday, there was the first report of somebody on Britain's no-fly list being brought by the British into Britain from Afghanistan. And so there's going to be a lot more of that. And would you anticipate, Robert Spencer, given, again, the tenets, the teachings, the requirements of Sharia, that that will translate in due course into acts of violent jihad inside the United States? Of course, there's really no doubt about it whatsoever. I mean, that's what Sharia is all about. It's about waging war against unbelievers in order to extend its own hegemony. And this is something that any Muslim who believes in Sharia is going to see as a divine responsibility, whether or not he or she ever lives out that responsibility. Nonetheless, it's an, it's an integral mainstream part of what it means to be a Muslim in this perspective. This is serious stuff, folks, and it is not meant to be defamatory to Muslims who, like the rest of us, uh, abhor violence in the name of a faith. But it does require us to be clear-eyed about 
the nature of this Sharia supremacist phenomenon, especially at a moment when we are being told we must bring large numbers of people, many of whom, I suspect, as Robert has indicated, are of uncertain character um, or origins or background or personal history or however you want to describe it. Um, this can give rise to a mortal peril inside our country, and uh, we have to be alive to that danger and, and take steps now to mitigate it. Robert Spencer, as always, we appreciate our visits with you so much. Uh, thank you for your work as a senior fellow of the Center for Security Policy. It's so appreciated, as well as your authorship of, among other things, um, Islamophobia and free speech. Really required reading, folks. Come back to us again soon, if you would, Robert. Next up, we'll speak with Michel Garfinkel from France. We'll take stock of how all of this Afghan fallout looks from the European perspective and more right after this. Visit us at facebook.com slash secure freedom with Frank Gaffney.